may be seated. Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. We'll be reading from verses 1 through 18 this evening. Let's give careful attention to God's Word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the sons, the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lift up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should... Have a husband this night and should bear sons. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's go to him in prayer. Gracious Lord, you are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. You show your kindness to the third and fourth generation. And Lord, we remember that you are faithful to your people, uh, not only to uh, point them to the destination, to point us to where we are going, but to be with us as we are making our way there. 
And so, Lord, we pray that having heard your word, we would believe it and it would sink deep into our hearts. So we ask that you would open our eyes and our ears now to receive it and to hear it. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a very good evening to you all and a warm thank you for uh, having me back again. It's a pleasure and an honor to bring you God's word. Uh, We're in the book of Ruth tonight, and as there's opportunity in the coming weeks, uh, I hope that we can kind of camp out there and and start working through it. Uh, And there are a few good reasons for that, maybe one that's less good. Uh, The first reason is that the book is short and concise. Uh, Second is that the Hebrew is written in a uh, good and forgiving prose. Uh, The third is that it's possible that we're working through this in... Uh, class, and so for some of my classmates, I appreciate your patience as I am uh, snatching some of the low-hanging fruit. Uh, But most of all, the book of Ruth puts on display God's great wisdom and his patience as he is working out his plan, and he calls this Gentile woman to himself who would be none other than the great-grandmother of King David. We see that in the book of Ruth because uh, at the very end there's a genealogy that directly connects her to him. And so we see as this story progresses, the Lord is providentially building up infrastructure for Israel's coming king. So that's kind of the 20,000 foot view of the book of Ruth and we should kind of keep that end in mind that there is a coming king. And so on top of that, uh, we see that the Lord is moving Ruth and Boaz to this destination. Uh, Later, this story draws uh, draws our attention to this fact as the Lord is ministering to his people as they make their way. And so we see that the specific way that this plays out in the book of Ruth is in how we see the Lord portrayed. The Lord's presence in Ruth is detected first and foremost by the work of his hands. Not the direct appearance of his face, not the sound of his voice, not the sending of a messenger to deliver a new word. Instead, we have his word actually on the lips of his own people. And so he is, uh, he is mentioned and his word are mentioned on the lips of his people. But the Lord himself is the actor in only two sentences. He's only the subject uh, that has a verb in two sentences in the entire narrative of the book of Ruth. One is at the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 6, which we just heard. We hear hear with Naomi that the Lord has visited his people and is giving them bread. He's giving them food in the midst of a famine. And the second time we hear that the Lord is acting in the book of Ruth is in chapter 4, verse 13. This is... Uh, After the marriage, it's where Boaz and Ruth have been married. And the Lord, again, gives, he gives Ruth conception of a child. In both cases, we see that the Lord is, is swooping into this dire state of affairs to bring provision and life to his people so that they will have, uh, so that they will have it. And so that they will have a hope and a future. And in so doing, he is showing that all along the way, every moment has been under his sovereign control. And he is using these circumstances to draw out the faithfulness of his people. We see this particularly focused with Naomi and with Ruth and with Boaz. 
but it extends into all the people of Israel. He's drawing out their faithfulness in the midst of roughness and tragedy in the fallen world. And so as you hear of the Lord's dealings with Israel and Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, uh, no Boaz yet, but uh, as we've just read now in our text, we're, we're confronted with this question. When the world is shattered, what do you cling to? When the world is shattered, what do you cling to? When you're surrounded with death, what is the source of life? Where does it come from? What must I do? Well, in the midst of these circumstances that we face, hard providence, hard providence which comes from God's hand is not a sign that he has abandoned Naomi. It's not a sign that he has abandoned Ruth. It's not a proof that they have been forgotten or that God will not do what is right, that he will not fulfill his promises. Instead, the hard providence, the trials, the tragedies, the difficulties in life are a profound opportunity to hang on tight to the one who is your lifeline when things get real. The temptation, of course, is to despair. But God's promises to you are all yes and amen in our faithful Lord. And so the book of Ruth offers us hope along those lines. So let's take a look at the, the circumstances. The circumstances of Elimelech and his household, uh, well, they start bad and they get worse. First, they're in the days of the judges, as we read in verse 1. Uh, and that's when things were chaotic and dark, with a few bright patches of God's redemptive work and his promise breaking through. But it was nonetheless a very trying and difficult time in Israel's life. On top of that, evidently, Israel is in a state and that cycle of uh, being unrepentant, the Lord sending a deliverer, and then there being peace in the land for some time. They're obviously in a state of rebellion uh, in the beginning of Ruth because, as we see, there's a famine. On top of this, Deuteronomy 28 describes the consequences of breaking covenant with the Lord for those who are about to enter this land uh, as including famine. And so with the famine, there is no food to be found. And there's evidently, for Elimelech and his family, not relief provided sufficiently by his neighbors, by his kinsmen. And this pushes Elimelech to lead his family out of the land. And this is a nuclear option for him. He is foregoing his inheritance. He is traveling to Moab, which is enemy territory. These are the the people occupying, still occupying, the promised land that Israel is to eradicate. They were supposed to have already done so, but they're still there. And Elimelech is doing this to scrape a living and to provide for his family. So we see that it's shaky ground from the very start, but it gets worse. Elimelech dies. And then Naomi's two boys die. These are the men that God has provided this woman for her provision and her protection. These are the men that she was called to serve. Gone. There's nothing else she could have done differently in this situation either. Her world shook and there was little left. Only her own life 
and the lives of her two daughter-in-laws, the Moabite women. Can you imagine that? All that she had brought with her into the land of Moab was gone. And there's a way of analyzing the situation and it's explaining its grief in terms of uh, breaking, its, breaking it down into its features, into its, its functions. Now she has even less social and economic standing, we would observe. Now she has to find a way to provide for herself. True enough. And yet, while these things are certainly features of the loss, they are not central to the loss. They are not the loss. The loss has three names. Elimelech, Mahlon, Kilion. Gone. And all of this while away from God's promised land, separated from his people, and ostensibly breaking his covenant by having left. Naomi's life is shattered, empty, and dust. They had left Israel for survival, but they didn't even get that. And so now, as we see in verse 6, she picks up what she has left and decides to return to Judah, leaving this place of death behind her, only in spite of herself, and going to to where the Lord was providing for his people. At least she can go home and perhaps die in solitude. And so Ruth picks up and leaves. She turns her back on Moab. And then at some point along the way of the journey, she stops, she turns to her daughters-in-law and says that they should actually do the same as she has done. They should just go home themselves. Stay in your land. Go to your mother's household. Worship your gods. And may the Lord deal kindly with you. Worship your gods. May the true Lord deal kindly with you. As you hear this scene play out, you may have noticed a record scratch. Uh, This Israelite woman is sending these Gentile women out to their gods and blessing them in the name of the Lord God in the next breath. And she's doing so with a phrase, may the Lord God deal kindly with you, that is God's special covenantal love reserved exclusively for his own people. But these Moabite women don't have any obvious claim to the benefits of Israel. God is not in covenant with Moab. And on top of this, idolatry is not really conducive to receiving the Lord's blessing. And so we see in this, uh, these final parting words that Naomi is giving, she is all out of sorts. In trying to get out of God's covenant boundaries, it's, it's almost as though the, the, the covenant blessings have come out from her and so she despairs she despairs of God's providence evidently he's just going to do what he's going to do and so his covenantal boundaries his own word that he's set down are irrelevant what hope could we have and so goes her first appeal Uh, that doesn't work on these two ladies Orpah and Ruth they refuse to leave, and so we hear her strike again with a second appeal that shows yet another layer of her hopelessness. She tells her daughters-in-law that she has nothing to offer them. 
There are no prospects for me, she says. In her anguish and her grief, she is only allowing herself to see what the Lord will do through her in terms of what she believes she ought to be able to offer them in this life. What is it that she should be able to offer them in this life? Well, she's only of use to them, in her own eyes, as a mother. Since she is defective here, she cannot be useful to them. And so, in her rhetorical line of reasoning, her questioning, can I offer you a son to marry? Would it make sense to even wait for him if I had one now? Does it look to you like I have any hope to offer you? And so asking these things, she is counting herself out as an instrument of the Lord. Additionally, she betrays this thought that the Lord is against her. His hand is against her. He will not help her. He is taken away, she sees, and she may, may, might even be convinced at some level that he was just in doing so. Whatever the case, she has completely disengaged herself from being an instrument of the Lord and sees herself merely as a victim of the circumstances. She believed nothing could come of her suffering and that Orpah and Ruth should just give up on her as she had long decided to do. Have you ever been there? Has the darkness ever been so thick and the future so unsure that your life feels so empty that it could be of no use to anybody? That the Lord has completely abandoned you? Naomi reads the circumstances this way. She sees them as a sign that the Lord is against her and that's that. Nothing to do about it. But Ruth does not accept this line of reasoning. No, her answer actually cuts through all of these appeals like a hot butter knife. In her answer, she shows what it's like to be full of hope in God according to his own promises set down in Scripture. Even if those promises are only partially seen to be fulfilled. Even if the circumstances are extraordinarily heavy. Look at what she says in verse 16. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. I want you to get three, uh, three pins out. Take the first pin, put it in that. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will, go, I will lodge. Next she says, your people shall be my people. The second pin goes in that. Where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Third pin, take it out, put it in this next one. Your God shall be my God. Look at what she's doing here. Look at what she's doing with these three points. She is actually claiming the promises of Abraham for herself as though she were a true Israelite. God promised Abraham a land and a people and to be his God in Genesis 15. And Ruth places herself squarely on the receiving end of that promise. Not out of presumption, of course, but out of a true and a sincere faith in what the Lord has said and in what he is doing. What Ruth has heard from this family of hers, her husband's household, Ruth was putting together that the Lord's purposes for her people are not indeed frustrated by difficult circumstances, but are accomplished through them and even, even by them. And so she commits to follow Naomi out of 
love out of concern for her good, as well as hope which grew from faith in what God had said, just like her father, Abraham. On top of this, note what Ruth's confession and oath, as she says them, what they actually do to Naomi's despair. Naomi thought that the Lord had taken everything and that his hand was only against her and that was that. (laughs) Instead, what was actually happening was that the Lord was revealing his promises. He was unfolding his purposes in concrete form, in real life, right in front of her face. The Gentile nations would be blessed by Abraham's seed. And they indeed are, because Ruth, the Moabite, of the nations is professing this faith. So Ruth's very presence is an eloquent witness and testimony to God's covenant faithfulness to Israel generally, but to Naomi particularly, specifically. Yes, it's in the midst of dire circumstances, but nonetheless, it is real, it is true. God is working among and in and through his people, expanding them and growing them according to his covenant purposes. In other words, Ruth herself and her own confession are a sign that God has not abandoned Naomi. And if he's not abandoned Naomi, then he has not abandoned all of Israel. And there's hope for them. Yes, Elimelech is dead. Yes, Israel has been unfaithful and famished as a result. But the Lord is with his people as they journey through these hardships. They are not a sign of his abandonment or the nullification of his promises. And so Ruth sees God's promises to reward Abraham with a land, with a people, and to to belong to him as the Lord. And she receives them in faith. She believes them. She knows that they are the case. She rests in what has been said against what her eyes Are telling her. And this is because the Lord has spoken. And so, in that moment, in in Ruth's own confession, we see that there's a transformation that's happened. We see that what was a moment ago Naomi's long road home is now Ruth's long road home as she journeys to go and to live and to worship, even unto death, within the bounds of the Lord's covenant promises. So let's consider that for ourselves. I've I've said covenant a lot, admittedly, so maybe let's swap some terms in. What spiritual goods then are ours in our Lord Jesus Christ as we claim those promises which are yes and amen in him? Well, we are his, and all that is his is counted as ours. We have the forgiveness of sins. This means that even in our sinful despair, when our hope wavers because of our faith weakening and our our backsliding, and we believe what our eyes are telling us, and we believe that his hand is only going out to us to, to destroy us, we see that his hand instead is going out to us in patient readiness for our repentance. And so we too, with Abraham, with Ruth, are enabled in Christ to grasp on to what he has set before us. Christ himself endured the separation from God, the curses of our sin, so that we would never need to despair. 
He has made the way for us. And all of God's promises in him are yes and amen. And so we can take all hope. Paul says in Romans 8, 38 and 39, you know these words well. Neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I left a key part out of that quote. Do you know what Paul is saying of these things? Before saying all of that, he says, I am sure. I am sure that neither death nor life will separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. I am sure. I am fully persuaded. There is nothing in this world. There is nothing that the flesh or the devil can do that can snatch me from his hand. And so my hope cannot waver and it must not waver come what may. Naomi, hearing Ruth's confession of the God of Israel being faithful to her herself, though she is a Gentile, Naomi hears this and she couldn't hear the covenant faithfulness of God to the generations of Israel, even now overflowing and incorporating a Gentile woman before her very eyes into it. And it's because the grief that she had had soured, the grief that she had had soured into hopelessness what else could she say in this state friends your response need not be the same your response must not be the same cling to Christ in his endurance of trials he was not going through them without a hope of resurrection without a hope that his father would vindicate him And if so for him, so too for you who are his. What might this clinging look like in your life? What might this clinging to Christ look like in your life? I could come up with any number of suggestions, but James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4, another phrase incidentally which you know very well says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, nothing in you is lacking. Christ is yours. Hope like it. Let him draw out your faithful response to his leading through all of life, all kinds of trials. Hope like it. It is a long road home, but there it surely leads. Now let's stand and join our voices together with the next hymn, number 598. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. I'll pray for us before we do that. Almighty God, you are great and high and lifted up. We pray that you would uh, lift our souls to heaven, that we would 
find our hope there and that we would look forward to your return, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting as you have uh, promised us according to your word. We pray that, it would, that your word would settle deep in our hearts and that we would grow in our faithfulness and our, our obedience to you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.